note, kind of announcement, and by way of introduction to the sermon, it's, it's really always, to put it mildly, interesting, how the Lord works in his church. If you're not coming to the Sunday school hour and hearing Mike talk on biblical anthropology, you are cutting yourself off from very, very good teaching. But not just that. It's that the Lord works in his teachers often to the ignorant, ignorance of the teachers. We're going to talk about some things today in the tabernacle that hearken back to Eden. Mark and, and Mike walked through Genesis chapter 3 today. It's just another reminder that the Lord is constantly working in his congregation through his speakers, through the pastors, ministers, deacons, the congregation themselves. And so to kind of leave yourself out of one is to not partake of the whole buffet plate in front of you. So please consider that as it is a really wonderful work to see how the Lord builds his church up through um, all the times we gather. So please, uh, Exodus 25, let me pray and then we'll get started. Gracious Father, turn our ears to hear your voice in uh, speaking, preaching of your word. Build us up in your most holy faith. Glorify your son. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we come to chapter 25. It begins a section on the tabernacle and the instructions of all things tabernacle related. Okay. Just the chapter prior, I know this was two weeks ago and that, as my kids said, as we were driving up here, it seems like so long ago, we haven't been here. It was only one Sunday, but yet a long time ago, we covered chapter 24. And in chapter 24, we saw this covenant ratification ceremony, a, a heavenly pattern of worship, which is going to be duplicated again and again through the tabernacle. So this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at Sinai is to be made happening again and again through the tabernacle and all the furniture and items within the tabernacle. So that basically means this. The tabernacle is a portable Sinai event. Okay? The tabernacle is a portable, take it down, build it up again as they go along the desert, Sinai event. Well, God calls his people to worship, through sacrifice, he makes them aware of their sins, and he shows them the satisfaction for their sins. That happens again and again and again and again and again and again throughout all of redemptive history. So what are we today, though, supposed to do with this seemingly archaic mode of worship? We don't have a Ark of the Covenant. We don't have a table with the bread of the presence on it. We don't have a very large golden lampstand. We worship in a building made of bricks, not tents, uh, linens, or anything like that. What are we supposed to do here? Well, we're supposed to simply learn about what, what is true worship and, and the gospel. And those aren't different because true worship has a gospel pattern. God calls people to himself, although they're not worthy of it. He makes them aware of their sin, and then he shows them the sacrifice and the, the, um, the satisfaction for their sin. That's the gospel in a nutshell, in a very, very small nutshell. And that's the, that's the form of worship. It is said a picture is worth a thousand words, and we have many, many words here in chapters 25 to approximately 30 showing us the tabernacle and, and true biblical worship. And here the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is spoken of in types and shadows, if we want to use the language of the New Testament. 
Christ is spoken of in types and shadows, in furniture, in, in rooms of the tabernacle. Not only showing that what here is physically true, there was a, a physical tabernacle, but also that there was a spiritual significance behind all of this. And that spiritual significance, I would just say, is summed up this way. The tabernacle shows us God intends to live among his people where he rules for us and provides for us out of his great sufficiency. Okay, some of that is probably familiar as we've been walking through Exodus. But God intends, this is my summary of the chapter and, and really the next five or six chapters. God intends to dwell among his people where he rules. He doesn't just dwell and hang out. He rules and reigns among his people for us. He provides for us out of his great sufficiency. So let's get into this here. Please follow along as I read the first nine verses. This is the, the grand Grand purpose is stated here that God seeks to dwell with man. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And I will just fast forward real briefly to the very last verse. Verse 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Again, we learned a couple weeks ago what an inclusio is, a bracketed section of themes. And we have that again here. But the grand purpose, and we'll get to that pattern in a minute, but the grand purpose is simple. It's in verse 8. This is the grand purpose of the gospel, of the tabernacle, the temple, the Garden of Eden, the New Jerusalem. God dwells with his people. He dwells with and in and among his people. That is the overarching gospel message that he seeks to do that. Now, that is repeated all throughout the Bible, especially in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially. And we might say, why is this constantly repeated? One simple reason, in my humble opinion, there are two things that we need to be convinced of, that God is a holy God, a majestic and transcendent, unapproachable God, and we need to be convinced that that is true. He is wholly unapproachable. And we do not belong in his presence. Now, many of us here have probably come to be convinced of that very truth. The gospel is to convince us in a greater way of God dwelling with man. So we have these two polar opposites almost. God is unapproachable. You cannot dwell with him. He doesn't, you don't belong in his presence. And at the same time, the, gospel, the, the scriptures remind us, I'm going to dwell among you. <laughs> I'm going to dwell among you. There is this antithesis where we need to be reminded and convinced in our heart of hearts that we by, by, being, by virtue of being sinners and God being holy, we do not belong in his presence. We need to be convinced of that, but we need to be convinced even more that God desires to dwell among us. And that is throughout Scripture. It's in the very last book of the Bible. That the great city comes down. Why? 
that God will once again dwell with man. He will be their God, and you will be his people. Second brief thing in this paragraph, Moses is ordered to build according to the pattern shown to him on the mountain. Now, there are two ways we can think about this. So just to back the, the truck up just for a moment, what is happening in, ver in chapters 25 to 30 approximately is going on in chapters 24, 12 to 18. Okay, so two weeks ago, we saw that, that heavenly meal is there, and then he calls Moses up again. God gives him the tablets of stone, the law that he wrote himself, God wrote himself, and the glory cloud there dwelt. And when Moses was in that glory cloud up on the mountain in 2418 for 40 days and 40 nights, 25 to 30 has been happening, right? So that's the scene. And as Moses is up there, he's told to make this tabernacle. Now, we can take this as two ways. One, God told him, hey, build a room like here, build another room right next to it, call that the, the holy place, and that's the whole, first, most holy place, and this is the court, and I want you to use these various um, metals and linens and whatnot. That could have been. That could have been what he did. But the Bible actually shows us a far more amazing, truly, truly amazing thing that Moses on the mountain of Sinai saw the heavenly pattern and was supposed to make an earthly counterpart. Hebrews 8.5, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So God is showing Moses a site of the heavenly temple, heavenly tabernacle. How that works in all of mystery, I don't know, but we know this. Moses has shown he is supposed to build a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So, so there are archetype things, heavenly things, and there's supposed to be an earthly counterpart. Going on in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So this is, this is a sermon. The building is a sermon. The tabernacle is a sermon. It is a sermon to God's people that one day the Messiah will come in and he will be a humanizing embodiment of the Ark of the Covenant, the, alt, the altar of incense, the lampstand, the bread, the priest, the breastplate, all of this stuff. And what takes place on earth will actually take place in heaven when Jesus ascends to heaven and does in heaven what was typified or shown to be on earth. Just think about that for a moment. There is, and I'm not going to claim full knowledge here, there is some mysterious way. God showed Moses Here's my heavenly courtroom, heavenly temple. Now, I want you to make a Lego set of that on earth. <laughs> There's going to be a most holy place, which is the most sacred place on earth. There's going to be a, another holy place. It will be very holy, not as holy. And there's going to be an, a, a court 
where it'll be more, uh, more accessible, less restrictive. And, and he tells Moses, make what you see, make a pattern on earth. And then as you worship through this tabernacle and what would be a temple, understand you are engaging in heavenly patterned worship. So what happens when you go through those brown doors right there? Come through those brown doors, you take a seat, and you wonder, already, when's church going to be done? I have something going on at 4.30 today. Um, I'm already hungry. Uh, My kids are already kicking my shins, right? We go through the doors. We're not going through the motions. God is really and truly calling his people up into worship and glorifying his son by making you all and me aware of the price he has paid by his blood to sanctify you, justify you, redeem you, and ultimately glorify you to bring praise to him. And all of this is done because in heaven there is the true archetype temple. That's crazy. If it was not true, it's unbelievable. It is sublime. Moses saw an earthly temple, excuse me, a heavenly temple, and then was to pattern that on earth. And of course, I almost thought about just doing a sermon on verses 1 and 9. This sanctuary, this tabernacle, is to be built with the finest, with the finest of materials. And to be built out of the redeemed people's free will offerings, essentially. He says in verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. Is God twisting their arm? Or is he saying, I have just (laughs) obliterated Egypt not, not but three months ago. I have pulled you out of slavery from which you were there for 430 years. I've walked you through this wilderness as you've, as you've mumbled, grumbled, and complained at me. I provided miracle after miracle, and now you're at my designated holy mountain, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And I will dwell with you here, and I want you to build for me a tent. Is that too much? <laughs> now we, and we should ask, well, where are they going to get the gold, the silver, the bronze? All things are connected in God's providence. We can, rethink, we can think about the uh, battle of the Amalekites, right? They're, they're complaining about the bitter water, the, uh, the place of testing, and then Amalek is on their heels and he's fighting them. By God's kindness, they defeated them and most likely, it doesn't say in the text, it doesn't say in the text, but, but most likely took their spoil, which included some of these things. But no doubt about it, we know that these items of gold and silver, silver blue, purple, scarlet yarns came from Egypt. Because as they left, the Egyptians were so fed up with the plagues, with their stubborn pharaoh, they just said, Get out of here. Well, you can take everything. Just get out of here. And they walked out with many, many treasures. And out of those treasures, which is just ironic, think about this. God is building a temple from the enemy's goods. He's building his temple from the enemy's goods. And they are supposed to build with gold and silver, bronze, all these various things. In the past, let's say medieval times, emperors, kings, popes would have various methods for building their great cathedrals, their great churches. 
often, and we would say their methods were probably less than godly. Going to war, raising support, it really is no different than today. <laughs> but, you, if their, but if their motive was to build a church to worship the heavenly Lord, we might not have a, much of a problem with that motive. We want our Lord to be worshiped in the most glorifying way possible. And notice that God doesn't say, yeah, you know, just burn some tin down or, you know, whatever camel hair you have, just, you know, ball it together, make a fence and, and do, no. He wants the very, very best. The very best. Gold, silver, bronze, finely twined linen, Acacia wood, very costly wood. Are we today accustomed to giving God our absolute best? Just think about that. Are we giving him our absolute best. This isn't, a, a, this isn't a section, an application on tithing. This is whether it is money, whether it is time, whether it is gifts and serving, whatever it may be. Do we have a earnest desire to see God worshiped in the most beautiful and glorifying manner? Or are we content with cinder block wa walls? Maybe we, some of us, we don't take worship seriously because we just think God is gracious. He'll overlook our building and he'll be honored there. And you're right, he will be honored anywhere. But is not, you'll probably take me to task on this, so I won't try to state it exaggeratedly. I would say most godly people in Scripture rejoice or lament the state of God's house. Think about when they came back from exile and they built this pitiful, pitiful little pretend temple. It wasn't pretend, but compared to the great Solomonic temple, it was, it was nothing. And they wept. God's people want God to be worshipped in a, I'm not saying ostentatious, in a fake pretend way, but in a way that would communicate, we're here to worship the glorious, gracious God of heaven. And there's no greater purpose in my life than that. There's no greater purpose than to worship God. We build churches with a sanctuary in mind and a basketball court in mind. How can we make both of this work? Do we have it in our hearts to build for God, not only physically, but also in our hearts, a, a temple, a worship, a sanctuary that is the best we can possibly do? So God dwells with man, and he dwells with man in a very aesthetically pleasing sanctuary. Second here, look at the king's footstool. The king's footstool. Follow along as I start in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside ye shall overlay it, and ye shall make on it a molding of gold around it. Ye shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. Ye shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Ye shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. 
Ye shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you, and ye shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And ye shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, ye shall make the cherub, cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Ye shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark ye shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay, so we have the very, very first piece of furniture described and the only piece of furniture that occupies the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. It is an ark. It's a chest. It's a chest. A very, very nicely looking chest. It's not just made of gold, but there's actually molding around it. There's, there's feet so that the chest itself never even touches the ground. The chest should never touch the ground. It has feet so that the feet touch the ground, but the ark does not. It's made of costly acacia wood. It has gold inside and out. It has rings on it. And poles that are covered in gold will, will go in the rings and they'll never move. They will always stay there and it will be the only way, the poles, by which you will transport this ark. No other way shall you transport this. In the ancient Near East, it was common for chests to be placed as footstools before a statue of a deity. So take your run-of-the-mill pagan deity in approximately 1400 BC, okay? Baal, Molech, whatever it may be. Very common for a chest to be placed before the deity statue. And that chest was essentially the footstool for the throne that the deity was sitting on, okay? And in that chest, treaty documents were placed signifying what that deity, how that deity related to the people, okay? We have a very, very similar thing here except for a couple differences. But we have a ark, a chest, placed in the most sacred place. The Torah is placed inside of it, the law of God, and that law, the covenant, the book of the covenant, is placed inside, and that, that tells Israel, this is how this relationship's gonna work. <laughs> I'm your God, I delivered you out of Egypt, you're gonna live for me, and you're gonna obey these things. And if you don't, you're gonna die. Okay, that, that was a, the gist of the law, the book of the covenant. But the ark was specifically, we have, a, we, have to, we have to know this, is a footstool. But there's no temple, or excuse me, there's no statue of Yahweh in the holy place. It's empty. It's just the ark. It's just the footstool. So where's the throne? Just to confirm the fact that this is actually a footstool, we have various verses, uh, one of which, 2 Chronicles 28.2, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, and for the footstool of our God. That's just Hebrew parallelism to say the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool. And I made preparations for this building. So there, the Ark of the Covenant is equated with the footstool of our God. Later in Psalm 132, let us go to his dwelling place and let us worship at his footstool. 
Well, where is the throne? If the footstool's there, where is the throne? The throne is with the Lord in the heavens. So now we have a really interesting thing. The Lord is on high, exalted, high, lifted up. He's on his throne in the heavenlies. His footstool's down here on earth. Um, this wouldn't be the only place, but it is one of the earlier places where we are told where God is to be worshipped is a meeting of heaven and earth. It is a meeting of heaven and earth. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But his footstool's here. Heaven and earth meet here. You have the same thing in Jacob's ladder. He takes a rock as a pillow, has a wonderful vision, and he says, I see angels descending upon this place and ascending. There God was, so to speak, heaven was coming down to be there at earth. He, Jesus himself is the ladder of Jacob on whom angels ascend and descend, says John, right? And so we have this wonderful picture that the Ark of the Covenant is the specifically located place where heaven will come down and meet earth. Just a, just a quick illustration. This is why cathedrals and churches in hundreds of years ago were built so tall. Because they really believed that true worship of the God of heaven involved a meeting of heaven and earth. And so we have here the idea that the ark is not actually the thing making the holy place holy. It is God's presence here. His feet, so to speak, put up on the ark as the footstool is making the most holy place most holy. And of course, on top of that, although no pun intended, is the mercy seat. Better translated, atonement lid. Atonement lid. Or propitiation lid. Here, this, this lid, this mercy seat is made of pure gold. Uh, it, it's not made of acacia wood with covered of gold. It is pure gold. Two cherubim are placed on either side of this chest and they face each other. And this was placed over the law. The atonement lid was placed over the law, covering the law. And of course, the cherubim are there. The only time prior to Exodus 25 that cherubim are mentioned is in Genesis 3. What are they doing in Genesis 3? They are protecting. And you might say, doing a little more than that. They are issuing a firm warning. Don't come up in here. You will never, ever return to the Garden of Eden. It was a, the cherubim. This is inculcated in the Jewish mind. The cherubim was a bright, no trespassing sign with intruders will be shot kind of thing. That's the cherubim. And, and we'll learn later in chapter 26 that the cherubim were also woven and sewn onto the veil separating the most holy place from the holy place and from the curtain separating the, the holy place from the court. When the Jews saw that, the cherubim, they thought, I don't want to go there. I don't want anything go, to go on in there. The last thing I know is that that thing's got a flaming sword it's going to chop my head off should I go where I don't belong. And the cherubim are there signifying the, the very presence of God and the fact that no one can just saunter in here, but only one man, and only one man once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest. Of course, the lid, the mercy seat itself, the atonement lid, is called atonement lid 
because on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go, on, would go in there with a rope tied around his ankle, just in case he dies and have to drag him out. He'll sprinkle blood on the atonement lid. He'll sprinkle blood on the atonement lid because that law which signified the relationship between Yahweh and Israel was transgressed. It was broken by Israel, never by God. <laughs> and the transgression demanded punishment. The, the, the punishment of death meant either their death or substitute death. And so the, lamb of a, the blood of a lamb would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, signifying a death has surely taken place in place of the guilty party. There, are, there is so much richness in here. I will just ask this. Where else do we see heaven come down? Who, with who else do we see heaven come down and dwell on earth? With who else do we see heaven come down to earth and also associated for spilt blood? Our Lord is the embodiment of the Ark of the Covenant. God has come down in human flesh and he didn't actually spill the blood of his enemies. He spills his own blood covers the law. It's under the blood and making his people clean. It's all embodied. It's all perfected in our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the incarnation of Christ shows that and more. Namely, where there is firm restrictions on the most holy place, here's, here's Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walking and talking, crying, rejoicing, eating, sleeping, with everyone, being with everyone. He, ha he hasn't made God unholy, but Christ has come in the flesh to be with his people in a way in which a box can't. Your religion is not a religion of furniture, but a living, breathing, flesh and blood savior who knows you, who understands you. Not a box, not a lampstand, not a table, not an ark, not an altar. A person who gets you, who knows you, who woos you, you and wins you over. The Ark of the Covenant is glorious, but not nearly as glorious as our Lord. Second item here is the table of the bread of the presence. Here we see the king's generosity. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Ye shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. Ye shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And ye shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. Ye shall make the poles of acacia wood of acacia wood, excuse me, and overlay them with gold, and, sh and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flags and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So here is another glorious piece of furniture. Nothing you're gonna pick up at Ikea. A table, but a table covered in gold. Again, costly acacia wood. Even the table is to be carried with poles and not touched. Itself holy by virtue of the presence of God. But it's really not about the table. 
but what the table supports. There we're told the bread of the presence is placed on the table. We're told in Leviticus 24, the bread of the presence would be 12 loaves of bread and they'd be placed there by the priests. The bread is a constant, constant metaphor for God's provision and God's generosity for his people. We have seen manna provided for his people in the wilderness. And here we have bread put before the Lord, so to speak. There is debate on whether this bread is for Yahweh to consume or for the priest to consume. Leviticus 24 tells us it's for the priest to consume. In the ancient Near East, a, a big meal was placed before the deity statue so that they would be pleased and satisfied. But obviously, Yahweh needs no bread. This isn't for him. It's a thank offering given by the people because of the abundance that God has given them. And more than that, the bread of the presence symbolizes as Leviticus 24 shows, it's for the priest to consume with Yahweh. With Yahweh. I, I admit, going through this, I, I, I saw many different references in the Bible for bread. You know, you have, you have the manna, you have... You have Jesus feeding the 5,000, the generosity there of the bread. You have Jesus himself saying he is the bread of life. And, and those are all very true. I think most to the point, though, is the idea that this is a meal where God eats with his people. He dwells with them. He dines with them. This is... This is said to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3. They're lukewarm. He rebukes them for that. But he holds out this promise. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Maybe fast food has altered our appreciation of a meal. I will not deny there is some good fast food out there. But that's beside the point. In the ancient Near East, and in, of course, many cultures today, even still, there is fewer privileges than to share a meal with someone else. And here is the Lord dining with his people. It's another reminder. I'm here among you. I know you're convinced, Israel, that I don't, that I shouldn't be with you and that I'm unapproachable and that I'm holy. I need to also convince you something greater, that I, that I sincerely desire to dwell among you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat with you. I will sup with you, as the old King James says. And again, Christ, eating in the house of sinners, eating with his disciples, not in a restrictive way where only the priests can go or the, only the religious elite. No, in fact, Jesus makes it the point, it seems to be, that he purpose, purposely goes into the house of those who are not uh, religiously up to do and dwell with them and eat with them. All that to simply say he accepts them. As Mike was teaching, um, it occurred to me, you know, we, we present the gospel in various, various forms, various statements. And um, just an, a, another, another wrinkle to understanding the gospel it is God coming to us, not us to him. It is God coming to us. We go to God, we want to build a tower like Babel, Babel. We want to work up our own merit. Doesn't work that way. 
I mean, just a very snippet of the gospel is, is simply this. Will you receive God? Or do you think, no, 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 I, I have to get to him. I'm, I'm not going to let him stoop down to me. I'm going to go to him. In fact, those of uh, you, my brothers and sisters, coming on Wednesday nights and we're walking through the whole Christ and we've heard the parable of the prodigal son many times. The prodigal son comes back and he rehearses to himself, I'm going to say this and that and that and this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my way back into my father's goodwill. And in fact, I got this whole speech laid out. I'm coming to him. I will not let him come to me. But what does the father do? He goes. He goes to the son. And he embraces him and he takes him in. We must ask ourselves, do you go to God or do you receive him? Do you go to God or do you receive him? You can never get to God. You can never get to God. Not in a thousand lifetimes. But you can receive him. The last, the last item here is the golden lampstand. This is truly amazing. Picking up in 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with, it, each with calyx and flower, on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and the calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. Ye shall make seven lamps for it, the lamp, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain." Usually we have this little idea of, you know, this is, a, this is the menorah, right? You know, one, one stalk, one trunk, and then the, the branches coming out. It really does a disservice. There are many wonderful things about this. The most wonderful is what it symbolizes, but itself is truly amazing. This is not just a multi-branched lamp. It is a tree-like floor lamp. It wasn't placed on a table. It was placed on the ground. And it was huge. 55 to 75 pounds of gold. It'd be like that. All spread out. That's a lot of gold. It would not just be a little, you know, little dinky menorah, a little candle thing. No, it was large. It was a tree of light. It looked like a tree. It wasn't on the table, it was on the ground. And it had one trunk, six branches with blossoms and calyxes and flowers. It was made of pure gold. It wasn't made of acacia covered in gold. It was pure gold, hammered gold, and had seven lamps. Not an ironic number, seven being a number for holiness and perfection. And those lamps were fed by oil. This, this lampstand is the only light in this dark room. 
the only light. And, and it, then it made the whole room an, a, a beautiful golden amber. Not only because of the fight, the flame giving it its tungsten amber look, but everything in the room was gold. Everything else was gold. The, the, ark of inc- the altar of incense is not mentioned here. That's later on. That's the only other piece of furniture in the holy place that is not mentioned. But even it is made of gold. And so you have this wonderful sight, a dark room and golden light shimmering on the objects, the wall, the curtain, the cherubim embroidery on the veil to the most holy place. What does this mean? Well, it no doubt had a functional purpose, but more than that, I wonder if this golden tree of light harkened back to the burning bush. You know the burning bush? It's on fire. Yet it's not being consumed. It's a, it's a tree with light. Yet it's not consumed. And this golden lampstand, we would get more details in other passages, but it's constantly being fed by the priests keeping oil in there. The flame's always going, never going out. Sufficient, never going out. It, it could be referring to the burning bush. It could be referring to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Light is often a metaphor for life. It could be referring to the Holy Spirit, which would be something. You have, you have the bread of the presence, the bread of life, Christ. You have the, the lampstand there, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is illustrated with oil, in the, in the scriptures. In Zechariah 4, you have a, a, a great lampstand fed continuously with oil. The spirit is called the sevenfold spirit in Revelation 4, which was another heavenly sight. Which is it? I don't know. But this is the wonder of the scripture. It may not be any one of them or all of them many layers to the meaning of the lampstand and undeniable parable, uh, parallels in all of it. But I will say this, just to quote a commentator, including the lampstand, this constant provision of food and drink and the like underscores that God is a resident at all times, both day and night. That would mean something for the Jew traveling in the wilderness The lamp is always lit. The darkness of the room isn't overcoming the light. It's always being lit. Well, as I started off with, this all teaches us that God dwells with us. He lives among us and he rules for us and he provides for us out of his great Sufficiency, And yet what we can see here with the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of bread is incomplete and imperfect compared to what was made perfect in Christ's advent. He really humanizes all of this so that what is restrictive is then made accessible to all. We have a Savior who is flesh and blood, can touch him, talk to him. He's not some ghostly aberration. He's real. He was born, he lived, he was tempted, he died, he rose to life again. And Christ's advent means all of what is pictured here is done away with because it's imperfect. But your religion, your faith now is not in objects or, or fear. Fear gripped the Israelite. Yeah, there sure is awe. But fear. You, you would die if you did this, if you messed around with the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, wrongly. So 
God doesn't become unholy. He doesn't put away his holiness. He can't do that and become approachable. What he does do is he, he becomes man and everything that is typified here becomes available and accessible in Christ alone. And he makes us what we are not to be what we can be only through him to dwell with him. And then just two parting thoughts here. The tension, as I mentioned at the beginning, has this unapproachable God. He's a glorious, holy Lord, but he's unapproachable. He's, he's utterly unapproachable. And yet at the same time, he says, I want to dwell with you. I don't want to be sacrilegious, but it's kind of like, like the, the, the person who keeps coming to you and you're like, no, you're fine. Stay over there. I, I, I really don't want to be with you anymore. So we have this problem of God dwelling in unapproachable light and yet he wants to dwell among us. Just two takeaways. Some of us should ask ourselves the question, do I view God as holy? Because am I taking for granted that he actually lets me in his presence? Are we taking for granted that the holy God of heaven lets us in his presence? There, I was told um, a while ago of a, of a church as they play a prelude prior to worship service starting, it's the same song played every time, the same tune. And it's the song, the tune to the hymn, let all mortal flesh keep silence. You all know the tune. It's not, it's not the most inviting and warm reception of a tune. And, of course, with the lyrics, you get the sense of, I need to have a mental check here that I'm coming into the presence of God. I'm coming into the presence of God. And I can't just saunter in because he's going to forgive me of it. Out of the dignity of his holiness and majesty, Majesty, I should come being reminded he's holy. Some of us need to be reminded of that. Do we regard as God as holy? On the flip side, some of us might deny it and say, no, 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 God can never dwell with me. He can never dwell in me. I'm a sinner. I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. And I think we should listen carefully to the words that God says when he promises, I will dwell among you. I will dwell in your midst. Don't weigh God's holiness greater than the work of Christ who brings you into his holiness. There is no conflict in God in that way. The, the, the work of Christ is just as significant as God's holiness and it is by his work that we come into his very holiness. I'll close with this quote. We should be encouraged because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is no tension there. The holiness of God doesn't keep sinners out who are wanting to get in. The work of Christ brings sinners into the very presence of God where they cannot be on their own.
Gracious Father, we do praise you for the work of your Son. He truly is the ark who rules over us and dwells with us, whose blood was spilt so that we could have a satisfaction for our sins. He is our bread and we feast on him. We consume him and desire to be filled with him. And he is our light. He lights our path. He illumines our heart. He illumines the world. Father, thank you for the view and the pictures of Christ we have here. May it resonate in our hearts and cause us to give you loud praises to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.